0: Hi, you're listening to the International Risk Podcast. This podcast is for CEOs, board members, risk and compliance officers, security advisors, and anyone interested in improving operations. On this podcast, we hear from the traditional to the wacky, from renowned corporate risk experts to former spies and special forces soldiers. There is something to learn about the way we perceive, manage and mitigate risk from all of our guests. Your host, Dominic Bowen, will ask the questions that you will want the answers to.
1: We would not have a place to live. It's such a heavy topic when it comes to talking about activism in the Philippines, but at the same time, it's a really important message that needs to be sent out to the world that Activists aren't scared here in the Philippines. We will fight for what we continue to believe, right?
0: If you know Dominic, then you know that he is well acquainted with risk. Dominic has successfully established operations in most of the major war zones and disaster-affected countries over the last 20 years. He is no stranger to risk and uncertainty and joined by our excellent guests, he'll reveal innovative ideas on how you can ensure your organisation thrives in areas with high risk.
2: It is not a secret that COP26 is a failure. It should be obvious that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place. And more and more people are starting to realize this. Many are starting to ask themselves, what will it take for the people in power to wake up? But let's be clear, they are already awake. They know exactly what they are doing. They know exactly what priceless values they are sacrificing to maintain business as usual. The leaders are not doing nothing, they are actively creating loopholes and shaping frameworks to benefit themselves and to continue profiting from this destructive system. This is an active choice by the leaders to continue to let the exploitation of people and nature and the destruction of present and future living conditions to take place.
3: Well, good morning. My name's Dominic and I'm the host of the International Risk Podcast. Today, we're joined by Chito Arceo. He's an 18-year-old climate activist from the Philippines. He's currently completing his bachelor's degree in arts and anthropology at the University of the Philippines. He's also the North Central Luzon Regional Coordinator for Youth Advocates for Climate Action in the Philippines. And he's also the president of the Abakan River and Angels Watershed Youth Council. As a youth climate activist, Chito has participated in the third National Climate Change Conference in 2019, and he recently attended the 2021 UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, as a member of the Fridays for Future, the Most affected Peoples in Most affected Areas. This will be a really interesting conversation with Chito. Welcome to the podcast today. Hello, Dominic. It's so great to be here, and thank you for having me. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. And there's a few topics I'm really excited about unpacking with you today, including climate justice and what that actually means. Now, most of us recognize that the ongoing climate crisis, if it's not averted, will lead to global catastrophic change, and it really must be urgently addressed. Therefore, we understand that it's imperative to demand justice for the climate from corporations, from governments, and from polluters, the people and organizations that are contributing the most to the degradation of the environment. Now, the International Risk Podcast has a lot of listeners. Many are business executives, leaders within society, government officials, and people who have sometimes and historically been attacked by climate activists. What's the message to some of these people? I think the most important message, because these people
1: have the power, absolutely to become one of the forerunners when it comes to tackling the climate crisis. I think the most important message is all about shifting our view and our narrative of what the climate crisis is supposed to be. You know, there's still a lot of people who think that the climate crisis can be solved through individual actions, through reducing, reusing, recycling. Well, those initiatives aren't bad per se, they aren't really the best things that we can do in order to solve the climate crisis. And when we talk about the crisis as a whole and you see these influential people, you see CEOs, you see businessmen, you see entrepreneurs, they have a lot of influence and power and they can use that influence and power in order to really make a mark in solving the climate crisis. When we put this, or rather when we use platforms that we have for example businesses having greener initiatives those initiatives already are a big step compared to individualistic actions because we need to be collective when we solve the climate crisis we need to work together as a whole when it comes to solving these problems that have And it really starts with the people who have the influence and the power to do that. So if there are people listening right now that may think that, oh, I'm a CEO or, oh, uh, I'm a business owner and I think I can do something to help solve the climate crisis, whether it be through initiatives or through policies or just changing your viewpoint and getting others or getting other people to help
3: you, that would already be an important step when it comes to solving the crisis so we know that many people listen to podcasts and when we look at the data from the International Risk podcast, we know that a lot of people listen to the podcast in the mornings either at the gym or on their drive into work or on the public transport into work. So some of our listeners today will be going into the office now I hear you and I've heard it before, and I think it makes sense that we need to change the narrative and that whilst individual actions are important. They alone won't save the planet. So the business leaders, the leaders in society, government officials, and and people just in in any sort of role of, of influence within society that are on the train or bus going into work right now, what action do you want them to take today? When they go into the office, what's one thing they can do? What's a conversation they can have? What's a policy they can review or try and influence? What's one thing they can do today? I think
1: one important thing that they can do is share their platform. It's great that they have the influence. It's great that they have the power. But it's also important to recognize that since the climate crisis is affecting a lot of people, it would be nice if we get to listen to other people's stories for business owners to actually share what they can do about the climate crisis. We really get to communicate with a lot of people and that's the most important thing. A simple reach out to activists like me, simple, simply reaching out to smaller businesses or for government officials, reaching out to their constituents, knowing how their constituents are being affected by the crisis. That's already a big step and it's a necessary step because we can't really solve this on our own, as you've said earlier. And not just You know, individualistic actions, but smaller collective actions won't be enough as well. If we don't listen to a specific sector or a specific group of people, that means we are already excluding them from the narrative. And the climate crisis is affecting everyone and we cannot really afford to exclude people from solving this crisis. So these business owners have the influence, have the power to reach out to people, make campaigns, and really make the most out of what they have right now. So using that for good and sharing that with other people is something that they can do to actually spark the conversation that we need to have right
3: now. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. And I really like your your idea about there needs to be more listening. And a lot of the guests we have on the International Risk Podcast are intelligence officials or people running operations in difficult locations. And one of the things that they often say is we need to speak to the people that live and work in the environments where we're operating. We need to understand. Even if we consider ourselves experts or we've got the the label of expert or specialist, you know, we have to speak to people. A good friend of mine in Australia, he's actually a politician. And whether you like politicians or not, this guy, three or four days a week, what he does all day, and often he does it with his wife, he will literally walk from business to business to business. He'll walk down the main street and he'll just stop people and say, hi, my name is, how are you going? How do you things are in the community? And he'll just be talking to people. And that's all, you know, that when I say that's all he does, but that's what he does three or four days a week. He'll be talking to his constituents. He'll be getting their feedback. It's really amazing. We, we always see politicians on the TV and we see them at conferences. We see them in parliaments. But there's the good politicians, I think, really are doing what my colleague and, and friend does and literally spending three or four days of his week. And that means weekends as well. He's walking down the street. He's talking to people. And I think that is so, so valuable. I understand that the Philippines ranks as one of the most vulnerable places on earth. And I was last in the Philippines in, in 2013. So it's getting a bit dated, but I was actually there straight after uh, a massive typhoon uh, had affected the the Philippines in in December 2012. And it was a really, really, really uh, devastating tropical storm and typhoon that, that came through and a lot of people were killed and a lot of damage. But you can see that it wasn't just this storm. You know, I think the Philippines is affected on an average year by between 19 and 21 severe tropical weather events, which is just huge. So when we talk about climate change, how imperative is climate change adaptation within the Philippines? When we put things into perspective, you know,
1: um, these typhoons, have, as you've said, we get like 20 typhoons a year. Well, most people would think that's normal for our geographic location. It's actually the intensity of these typhoons that are getting stronger and stronger and are very unnatural because of human induced effects. These Typhoons are getting stronger and stronger, and adaptation can only do so much. But at the same time, it is really imperative for us to be able to adapt when it comes to these natural disasters. It is really important that we push adaptation, and we have a concrete idea of what we want to do when it comes to natural disasters like these. You know, one of the things that they teach here in the Philippines, we have this subject called Disaster Risk and Reduction Management. It's all about knowing what to do when a typhoon hits, when an earthquake hits. But at the same time, it it's still lacking in a sense that it's very reactive. It's more of, oh, here's a typhoon. Here's what you're going to do. Instead of actually creating policies and actually creating actions that are more proactive, like how do we build infrastructure that is better for adaptation? How do we inform people of, the importance of storm surges and really adapting to the typhoons. Because at the end of the day, adaptation is still not a necessity here in the Philippines. It's still more of a privilege because people don't really get access to education that much. What we learn in school, it's very surface level. So when we have a more proactive approach to adaptation, that really lessens the risks that we have when it comes to facing these natural disasters. And just to add to the point earlier, we just had a typhoon called Typhoon Udet last December and it was one of the costliest typhoons to ever hit our country. There's still a lot of people being affected from that. And really, that could have been, well, not solved, but that could have been, or rather we could have been in a better situation. If we really had plans for adaptation that are very solid, that are very concrete, that our government initiated, but we did not. It's really more of, oh, here's a typhoon, here's what we're going to do about it. And I think that really cost a lot of lives. So we really need to have a proactive adaptation plan when it comes to these natural disasters.
3: It's worth emphasizing to our listeners, for those that haven't been to the Philippines, that as many of our regular listeners will know, I've been responding to humanitarian emergencies and disasters around the world for nearly 20 years. And, you know, I've worked in Nearly all major conflict and major disasters uh, over that time. But the Philippines is an extremely advanced society when it comes to disaster response. As you you know, as we agreed, you know, there's about 20 tropical storms plus a variety of other humanitarian disasters and catastrophes that occur in the Philippines. And you have very, very good community responses and people are very, very adept. I mean, I was running a disaster risk reduction program in Timor-Leste, a beautiful country just to the north of Australia. And whilst I was running this disaster risk reduction program, it was for government actors within the Timor-Leste government, but also non-government actors. And we started running the training. It was after three or four days, I realized that some of the material wasn't really, it wasn't being impactful. You, you could tell that the training participants weren't going on. And then so we, we scaled it back and we scaled it back. And then I realized that, you know, some of the fundamental concepts of what causes a tropical storm what causes a volcano to explode? You know, things like tectonic plates. We had to go right back, right back, and we had to redesign the, the, the whole program and, and extend it. And we ended up having some fantastic impacts, but it took a really long time. But that's not the Philippines. The Philippines is very, very advanced. I mean, the average community member knows how to conduct the needs assessment, which is people in Sweden and Australia and America wouldn't know how to do that. But people in the Philippines have been trained and experienced and you have quite advanced systems. But as you said, they're still not comprehensive enough. There needs to be the government action, the policies, the frameworks, the international cooperation agreements in order to make sure that the disaster risk reduction programs are effective. We know that environmental defenders around the world suffer from thousands of human rights violations every year. With the Philippines as one of the most dangerous countries in the world for environmental defenders, I'd like to ask you about that. There's been repeated calls to stop persecution of climate activists. And in many countries, that's really hard to fathom, how someone standing up for the environment, defending our forests, our environment, our air, our climate, our earth, could be prosecuted and persecuted. Can you talk to us today about what risks you face as a climate activist in the Philippines? Definitely. That's
1: always been a big issue when it comes to climate activism and activism in general here in the Philippines. One of the most common risks that we face is being red tagged. If people aren't familiar with the term red tag, it's basically being called communist. Every time that we publish materials or every time we speak in platform, it's really being activists as targets because we have different political views than the ones that are in power. Or we have some critiques for the government that is seated right now so that's just one of the few risks that we face every day and it's almost borderline casual which should not be the case it's a very serious situation it's easy to tag someone as a communist as a terrorist with the current administration that we have right now and really it's life endangering last year i think there are at least 20 people that died just fighting for the environment and that's only because their views and ideas aren't aligned with the governments and the private sectors that wanted the environment for their gain aside from it being scary especially as a youth climate activist you never really know when they're going to come for you it's also really saddening because These people are fighting for the environment. Their cause is genuine. And it's so sad that lives are being lost just because of this fight, which should not be the case at all. It should be implied or it should be common sense that we are fighting for the environment because without the environment, we would not have a place to live. It's such a heavy topic when it comes to talking about activism in the Philippines. But at the same time, It's a really important message that needs to be sent out to the world that activists aren't scared here in the Philippines. We will fight for what we continue to believe is right. And at the same time, we recognize the risks that we are facing today. We are not turning a blind eye on them. We are being very careful and being cautious on the actions that we continue to do each day. And at the same time, it's important to continue to fight for these advocacies because if we don't have defenders defending our environment, then who will defend it for us? So while it's very risky and while it is sometimes you know a bit concerning, the fight continues.
3: I mean, when people's views are not aligned with government or big business, that clearly shouldn't result in their deaths. And I think that just goes without saying. But noting the dangers of your activism, why do you continue noting the risks that you face? As a youth climate
1: activist whose focus is a bit more on the online work, it is a bit safer for me to continue doing what I do right now, compared to the Indigenous people that are in the front lines. I feel like there's still a need for us to continue doing what needs to be done, because for the people fighting there in the front lines, their lives are at stake, the least we can do is give back and have the same energy that they have when they fight for the environment. For us, it's really already a privilege that, you know, we, for us members of the youth, that we don't get to hear our lives as much. And we have our platforms right now. So it is our responsibility to utilize those platforms for the sake of the environment. And at the end of the day, this message needs to be sent. This message has to get across to our fellow youth, to the people of society, and of course to the citizens of the Philippines and the rest of the world who still don't think that the climate crisis is important enough to actually give a care about. We continue this because it is very vital for our survival as a society. And of course, we continue this for our future, not to be ages, but The youth are more inclined when it comes to fighting for the climate because we still have, there's still a future that needs to be looked for. We need to pass this on for generations and generations. And some people really don't have that care because they feel like their, their time has passed and they don't get a gain when it comes to actually caring for the environment. But for us, it's really important because who knows what will happen in the next 10 years? Things will only get worse when it comes to the climate crisis. And we, we don't really want to inherit a dead planet, as we've always said. So it is really important for us to speak up and continue the advocacies
3: that we've already started. Yeah, Chido, I've heard you say before that you refuse to inherit a dead planet. And this is one of the reasons why you're working tirelessly to mobilize and collectively sound the alarm to demand climate justice. What can youth around the world be doing to mitigate these international risks of climate change? The youth can use the platforms we have right now. One of the most
1: important things that really needs to be forwarded when it comes to solving the climate crisis is education. And with social media and online platforms, and really more references now and resources now more than ever, education has been easier to access now because really there's a lot of material to source from the internet it's so easy to connect from one person to another and as members of the youth who most of us are still actually pursuing our education you know it goes hand in hand that we get to educate people about how we should continue with the climate crisis because that's the first step If people don't understand what they're fighting for, then they're not gonna join your cause. You have to let people understand first why the climate crisis is important, and that's where education comes in. When we, as fellow members of the youth, get to educate our people and the people around us, then it's easier for us to convince them to join the causes that needs, that need to be joined, and it's also going to be much more passionate that they know what they are fighting for because they've been educated. And localizing those educations and adapting those to the needs of each community, that's what's going to save us from the climate crisis.
3: Yeah, thanks for explaining that, Chito. I know Yale University recently produced some research and they identified that about half of Americans either strongly or somewhat support climate activists who actually urge politicians and elected officials to take action to reduce global warming. I thought it was quite interesting that Democrats, according to the Yale research, Democrats are most likely to support climate activists, with about 84% of respondents green. Independents, about 50%, and people who identify as Republicans, about 23% strongly or somewhat support climate activism. And I thought it was interesting that you said in the Philippines, if you're a climate activist, you're labeled a communist. Can you explain why that is? Well, it's because in the Philippines,
1: the people are complacent on what the government is doing already. When they face some sort of criticism, the people don't really take that positively because they feel like the government's already doing enough. And honestly, the people are not to blame. There's still a lot of education that needs to be done. When it comes to the role of the government, why the government's response is extremely lacking when it comes to the severity of the climate crisis. However, for us students as well, that takes a toll on us. And of course, not only members of the youth, but also people who are being called terrorists. In 2020, there was this act that was passed by our president, the Anti-Terrorism Act of 2020, that really what the act is all about is the government can call someone a terrorist and whether or not they have committed terrorist acts, And it's just a vague description of what terrorism is. And that can go from just one social media post about the government. And that's really concerning. Of course, the political climate doesn't help as well. So really, these activists, when it comes to Being called communists when it comes to being red tag, it's the political views and ideas that really just don't mix mix and match together. But it puts our life in danger, and the people don't really want criticism because they don't want to face the consequences of the climate crisis. They feel like their lives are comfortable enough on their own, and they feel like the government is doing well with education. People can relax what's right and what's wrong about the government. I hope this red tagging gets lessened in the future, and I hope activists are viewed in a more positive light when
3: people really realize what we're facing. The same research from Yale University identified that one in ten Americans have contacted their local politicians to ask for action about climate change. And I understand that climate activists like yourself, Chito, demanding that in order to prevent further global degradation, there must be a system-wide change and action to transition to more pro-environment, pro-people, plans and needs-based systems. What does this new pro-environment, pro-people system look like that activists like yourself are calling for?
1: Before anything else, we have to recognize that system change doesn't really it's just not a short time. It takes a very long time, you know. It will take generations before this system gets even enacted in the first place. Probably a hundred years or so. Because really, there's a lot of things that you have to change. But right now, there's still not, we don't have a name for it in a sense that, oh, this is the system we want to use. Because even in system change, people are still debating. Even activists are still debating on what system to use. I think there's a general consensus that the system that we have right now, capitalism, very profit-oriented, it's not going to be well for our environment. And just to give you an example, that's actually one of the reasons why our defenders are being killed in the Philippines. Our defenders, especially indigenous ones, insist on their land being preserved for their own good. But our governments and the big businesses want to convert this to subdivisions and they want to continue mining. And really all of this is profit oriented. And if we put money out of the equation, I think people will be a lot more connected to the environment and to the needs of the people in relation with the environment that we are living. In. So right now there's, I guess the system hasn't been established yet, but the first step that we should do is really change the viewpoint instead of having things just be profit-oriented, we should view it as more of the needs of the people and how we can relate these needs to the environment
3: that we are living in. And Gina, can you explain what watershed rehabilitation is? Yes, of course. We've talked about adaptation and mitigation
1: earlier, and this is actually my longest advocacy as of now. I've been working on it for three years now, and it's the Watershed Rehabilitation Campaign. The thing about watersheds is these are actually our biggest natural weapons when it comes to solving the climate crisis. Watersheds are areas of land greenery that conserve water through the roots of the trees. And there are a lot of watersheds, not only in the Philippines, but in the world right now. And the sad thing is, most people don't know about it. And most people don't really care about the watersheds. You know, there's a lot of tree planting initiatives that are being done by the government and being done by even business owners who want to push for greener initiatives, but the problem with that is they don't plant it at the right areas, they don't plant it at the right places. Some people in the Philippines do their tree planting in urban areas. Well, that's great for the community. it's not going to thrive in the long run. With watershed rehabilitation, we get to concentrate our weapons in a sense because trees are our biggest weapon, and watershed are a collection of trees. And if we continue to rehabilitate our watersheds and really give a place for our trees, not only will will our water resources be replenished, these watersheds can act as strongholds when it comes to facing natural disasters. That's why they're both adaptation and mitigation plants, Because they can do both. With watersheds, you adapt to the natural disasters, but at the same time, we mitigate the effects of these natural disasters. And It's really important to push for these because there's a lot of places with watersheds but not enough care. And we can do so much better in the crisis when we concentrate with these watersheds.
3: Thanks very much for explaining that, Chitho. Now, I understand in the lead-up to COP26, you conducted a series of Youth Warrior and Green Advocate workshops, participated in in some of those. How successful were they and, and what was achieved? what we did and what we actually continue to do is
1: reach out to our local government unit and our the business owners here in our community to partner for the rehabilitation of our local watershed field. And it's actually quite successful in a sense that we are still getting partners, we are still getting a lot of people involved, and of course members of the youth as well who are interested in this advocacy we really got to have people that are passionate about this cause and i think that helped me in COP26 because i had an idea of what i wanted to fight for what i wanted to advocate for and aside from watershed rehabilitation i also got to advocate for youth activism and preserving greener spaces and these workshops and the activities that we did they were successful We are still continuing to do these
3: projects, and we hope to do so in the future. I think the climate policy, both with government and within private corporations or public corporations, is becoming an increasingly important determinant of the business environment that many of our listeners are working and operating within. And the renewed and increased ambition of climate pledges that came out of COP26, I think will spur new regulations. They will support green innovation, and I think additional financing will be available for for some of the initiatives that you've talked about today. And I think that this hopefully, and I'm fairly confident that this will lead to a significant transformation of the global business environment in the coming decades. And as you said, this isn't a quick fix. This is going to take several decades, but I think that change is coming. But you attended COP26. That must have been quite an interesting experience. Can you talk to us about how what your feelings were coming towards the end of COP26? Do you feel it was a success? Do you feel like it was a worthwhile activity? What, what are your thoughts today?
1: I feel like my fellow activists would agree, but it was just a big sense of disappointment because there were a lot of big pledges that were made, but none of them really pushed through. And the success that we were hoping that they got pushed through, COP26 was really advocating in the start about how it's going to be the most inclusive, it was going to be groundbreaking, but they didn't really achieve any of those things. In fact, it was very exclusive for us, you know. The system was really inconvenient for non-white activists and people who attended COP26. A lot of us were excluded from the important negotiations and really the plenaries that were happening. And without by POC voices, and without MAPA voices negotiating for the climate crisis, really, what can you achieve? Because these people are disproportionately affected by the crisis, and if you don't hear the people who are being affected by the crisis the most, then who are you making policies for? One of the quotes that surfaced during COP26 was that, the government officials were, or rather the, the white government officials were fighting for their children's futures, but they were disregarding the present of the black indigenous people of color's experiences. And a lot of people came to COP26 with expectations, and we really had some great expectations for COP26, but it all fell flat, fortunately. This is not to say that COP26 didn't achieve anything. In fact, it did achieve some important moments for the climate crisis. But still, it is very lacking in the context of the most affected peoples and areas, and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done.
3: You said that non-white peoples were excluded from negotiations and engagement during COP26. On the International Risk Podcast, we have listeners from around the world. We have people listening every week from Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, Asia, Europe, but we do have a lot of white listeners, Caucasian listeners. So for for some of us, and I'm Caucasian male, can you explain what that means? What does it mean when you say non-whites were excluded from negotiations and engagement? Because if, if you're not one of the people that are excluded, if you're not part of that community, it can sometimes be hard to understand what does it actually mean to be excluded from COP twenty six negotiations when, as far as many of us can see, it was the global climate change conference. So how can people be excluded and what does that mean? Personally, as someone who was excluded because my status wasn't important enough
1: in a sense, it's the idea of having the same or rather it's a it's the idea of having the same sentiments as White people, per se, but people don't listen to you because of your skin color. This is not an attack on white people. This is just trying to contextualize some of the things that happened during cop twenty six But if you put someone who was let's say from Europe versus someone from let's say South Asia, and we said the very same things on cop twenty six or the climate crisis, chances are the person from Europe gets heard more because it's really just prejudice and. You know, that's really heartbreaking because there's this idea that indigenous people, people of color, aren't as educated enough when it comes to the climate crisis. But in reality, uh, we all came to COP26 with the advocacies that we planned. We all came to COP26 with advocacies to fight for that are near to our hearts, that we see are affecting our communities every single day, yet to be excluded you know and to not be heard when it comes to our pleas it's just yeah i think heartbreaking is the right word because there is a lot of heart and passion when it comes to fighting for the climate crisis and we can't really remove the prejudices that are being perpetuated by the system right now so for those who haven't felt what it feels like to be excluded well it's not a really good feeling at all and it's important that you really get to know the experiences and listen to the experiences of people who have been excluded in order for us to understand the full narrative especially when it comes to the
3: climate crisis thanks very much for explaining that I, I appreciate that and as you said earlier climate change is often perceived as a younger person's issue with younger people generally more likely to see the environment as a top issue for them as opposed to some of the old generations i know you gov conducted a poll after COP26, and they found that about half of people in the UK believe that COP26 did little in terms of actually finding practical solutions. It did bring attention to the issue, but it didn't actually bring anything practical forward. What needs to occur before the next COP, before COP27? What needs to occur to ensure that everyone... Feels that there are some solutions. We are stepping forward in the right direction.
1: Well, that's a really good question. And I think before COP27, you know, before we even make actions leading COP27, we first must understand the repercussions of COP26 and what it really meant for us. In the sense that you've said that, you know, it brought a lot of attention, but not really enough work to be done. That That's the thing that disappointed us the most. We've had 26 years of climate change conference. We're way past the idea of putting attention to the climate crisis. In 26 years, we should have been already having policies that are groundbreaking. We should have already climate policies that are strong and that continue to affect the world that we live in right now. So I think for COP27, the most important thing we can do right now is actually hold on to the pledges that were made during COP26. There was the Glasgow Declaration on Forest Protection, so it's important that we protect our forests and our wildlife. There's also the statement of coal and fossil fuels in the Glasgow Climate Pact, and while the wording is a bit disappointing, during the Glasgow Climate Pact there was the wording of coal. Instead of phasing out, uh, it was phasing down, which is a bit of a disappointment because at this point we have to phase out for in order to really have an impact in the climate crisis. So first we must really solidify the plans that we have made during COP26 and approach COP27 in a more people-oriented way. We need to listen to the voices of those in the front lines, the people who are being disproportionately affected by the climate crisis, in order to really make policies that cater for all people, not just those who are privileged and not just those who are already from developed countries. We need more financial stability, we need more financial support and we really need policies that continue to cater for the people that need it the most.
3: And for anyone that's not aware, COP27 will actually be held in the very beautiful location uh, in Egypt at the Sham El sheik this year. And whilst Shavel Sheikh is a, is a very beautiful location, climate activists and human rights experts have already expressed concern about the location and whether Egypt's authoritarian rulers will actually allow activists and whether they'll allow any form of protest to actually occur. So the risk to climate activists seems likely that it will remain for the foreseeable future and, and protests and engagement at COP27 may sadly not be as forthcoming and as wide and deep as, as perhaps we'd all like, Chito. Well, when we look ahead for the remainder of 2022, what are the main risks that you're concerned about and what are the things that you're monitoring? As a climate activist? Yeah, as a climate activist, but as a youth living in the Philippines and uh, as someone who holds an important place on, on this planet.
1: First of all, we can't deny the risk of natural disasters that will continue to plague us really in the next the entire year and speaking of plagues we still have a pandemic that is going on right now and you know that pandemic COVID-19 pandemic especially with the new variants uh, it's uh it's been quite detrimental to the people that are fighting the crisis and of course the shape of the environment that we live in right now things are much harder to express really and the difficulty of all things that we are doing right now is heightened because of the pandemic So that's an important risk that we need to take into consideration as well. And also, as I've said earlier, we still have natural disasters and scientists have agreed that it's only going to get stronger. So we need to have better adaptation and mitigation plans, especially from the government. So we are really looking out for that. In the Philippines, just to give you some context, 2022 is the year of our presidential elections. So in May, we are we're going to be electing a new president. And whoever that president may be, we are looking forward to to more climate policies that really cater for the needs of the Filipino people because that's what needs to be done. Because the past administration has done nothing to actually forward our progress in the climate crisis. And of course, as members of the youth, there's still the risk of being red-tagged. There's still the risk of being shut down because we are too young to talk about climate crisis. You know, we really need to push forward and we really need to continue to mobilize. We need to continue to influence people in order for that risk to be mitigated. We need people now more than ever when it comes to solving the climate crisis and we need action now. Action is incredibly important and that's non-negotiable. We need to act now.
3: Well, thanks very much for sharing your thoughts today, Chito. It was uh, really interesting, and I appreciate your passion. I appreciate your work, and I hope you stay safe in 2022. Thank you very much, Dominic, and thank you for giving me the platform. Well, that was an insightful conversation with Chito Aceo, a youth climate activist from the Philippines. I enjoy hearing his insights about climate activism, the risks faced by climate activists, the international risks of inaction, and his insights from COP26. Thank you for listening to the International Risk Podcast and please subscribe to future episodes to ensure you receive all our episodes. Thanks very much.
0: You've been listening to the International Risk Podcast hosted by Dominic Bowen. Please go to wherever you download your podcasts and give this podcast a five-star review. Your positive reviews on this podcast and subscribing to future downloads is critical for our success. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about this podcast. Consider if you know someone that would appreciate or benefit from today's conversation and send them this podcast right now. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for your fix of risk-related stories.